people. I hate the term soft skills. Mm. And it's more than just a two-day offsite, now you're all leaders. It's a regular curriculum. We also build it into the incentive packages. We actually can't incentivize performance. That's impossible. You can only incentivize behavior. But we only try and reward people when they hit a number. And yet we don't consider how they act at work. Well, if we built into people's compensation packages your performance and your behavior, you'll find people will behave better. Yeah. You know, you get the behavior you reward. But ultimately, it's about recognizing that business is a human enterprise. Culture first. 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 I'm your host, Damon Klotz, and you are listening to Culture First, a podcast where you'll hear stories about why being intentional about your company culture can create a better world of work. If I ask you to name a thought leader in the company culture space, my assumption would be that Simon Sinek is one of the first names that would come to mind. His books have topped the bestseller list year after year, and his ability to tell stories that inspire behavior change have had a tremendous impact on how I approach my work. I'd even argue that right now in a meeting room at a company that you and I haven't even heard of, there is someone probably explaining the golden circle and the importance of starting with why. I say that half-jokingly, but also with the knowledge that I have sat in those rooms. And I've also been the instigator who's asked everyone to step back and remember to reflect on the why and the how instead of the what. A couple of years back, I was able to sit down with Simon at Culture Amp's Culture First Conference in San Francisco. It was a conversation that I feel like was a decade in the making. I'm really glad today to be releasing the extended version of this conversation for the first time, and I'm feeling super optimistic that you're going to love it. Whether you've read every single one of his best-selling books, or maybe you've just clicked on this episode and you've actually never heard of him, trust me, this is a frank conversation with a person who refuses to be titled anything other than Optimus. He'll explain why in just a minute. During our conversation, optimism does take center stage, along with the power of listening and the undeniable impact of humility. We also discuss the need for leaders to have what Simon has termed an infinite mindset and how they can do this through a willful focus on a higher purpose or cause. We talk about how much he hates the word managers, creating safe spaces, and the delicate balance between being a know-it-all and a learn-it-all. You'll also hear Simon struggle to translate the way Australians, myself included, say the word jerk. So we exchange the term brilliant jerk for toxic genius before tackling how to best deal with them in a culture-first way. This conversation was recorded in 2019, which is pre-ChatGPT. But Simon did use our conversation as a platform to express his concerns about the power and influence of big tech companies and the need for balancing their role in society. There's four things that I really want you to listen out for that I believe will help you create an amazing culture at your company. How to create a performance system that incentivizes the desired behaviors of your company culture. Why the question to what end will reframe how you make decisions. 
what a world without storytelling would look like, and what we can learn from the companies who have had culture-first transformations that allow them to play the long game and who Simon thinks is doing a great job of putting culture first. One last thing. If you head over to my Instagram page, you'll see a video clip from this interview where you might notice that Simon is wearing something orange. Stay around to my closing thoughts to learn the story behind the symbolism of the color orange and why Simon chose it. All right, let's head over to my conversation with the one and only Simon Sinning. Thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. So we don't know each other that well right now. So what's one thing that you might want to ask of me that might open up this conversation with a bit of hard talk? Well, I like to know where people are from. Mm -hmm. I like to know what their backgrounds are and how they find themselves where they are right now. Mm. So I think asking people about their families or where they come from is a free space to talk about yourself. I think a lot of people are uncomfortable talking about themselves, but that's a little more objective. Mm. I think our place of home and where we come from tells a lot about us and sort of where we end up actually. So you and I are both far from our original homes. So where were you born? Uh, Originally from England. Right. Yeah, a long time ago. And you now call the United States home? Oh, for many, many years, yeah. And I'm from Australia, now I now now call the United States home. Does that change your perspective when you find yourself with a lived experience that's now very different to where you find yourself now? Well, I grew up all over the world as a kid. I was born in England, moved to South Africa, back to England, then to Hong Kong, and then to New Jersey, from Hong Kong to New Jersey. So it's a radical shift. Mm. Um, uh, And I went back to England after college as well. So, I mean, it's definitely had an effect on my life, of course. Uh, My sister and I are both very different people, very different personalities, but we're both very comfortable being dropped off into strange places and figuring it out. And Mm. that's as true for work as well, which is the unusual, the new or the uncomfortable. We tend to sort of like navigate it, you know, and it's not because of some innate gifts. It's because we were very lucky that growing up, we lived all over the world. Yeah. You call yourself an optimist first. Mm. And I think someone with your kind of stature and you're quite well known, people might label you of other things, but why is it important for you to always say, I'm an optimist first? I I don't want to ever be labeled or label myself by what I do, Mm. because what if I don't do that anymore? Then I don't want my identity tied to my my work. Uh, My work is the thing that I do to advance something bigger than myself, but what if I change that or stop doing it? Mm. Um, So I, I, I always insist that if anybody wants to refer to me as anything, Refer to me first by who I think I am and how I identify myself, which is an optimist. And then you can tell people what I've done. Yeah. I think you've got this incredible ability as a storyteller that people really get, um, not necessarily bought in, but I think you just tell a story in a way that makes people really feel something. But you also worked in marketing and advertising. Do you think that played a really big role in, in the way that you've been able to effectively tell these stories to many people around the world? No, I don't think so. I think that that's always been how I've been. I mean, I think in metaphors, I think visually. Mm. And so the way I like to understand things, the way I can more easily grasp a subject is if somebody tells me a story. And so the way I learn to interpret ideas is through metaphors and stories. And that's how I explain things because that's how I view them. Um, uh, and I think to truly grasp an idea, the ability to, to, to create a metaphor about it or, or tell a story that captures it, I think is a good sign that you grasp the concept. Yeah. I think where I am in my career right now versus where I started, I've actually probably lived four or five different lives. But the thing that stayed the same is the ability to actually help people with behavioral change and to be inspired by something new that they didn't know that they might have even needed or were capable of. Uh, so that, that's actually been my through line. So, you know, started off as a HR practitioner, then did more consulting and speaking around HR technology, 
they'd actually just left it all behind and said, I'm going to try something else. I did uh, digital marketing in a healthcare company. And then I actually co-founded a men's mental health charity where I tried to use language and uh, sort of behavior change to actually have a different conversation around men's mental health and to help men uh, sort of reduce the suicide rate in Australia. And then I ended up joining a startup and then sort of doing more marketing work. And now this as a storyteller, but throughout my whole career, I think what I found is it's actually just storytelling that helps people see the world in a different way that they leave then inspired to actually sort of want to be part of that change. Yeah, I mean, that is the goal. All of my work can be explained without stories and it'll just be boring. Mm. You know, there's research in there and there's empirical data in there and there's, you know, explanation in there, but it's, it's the stories people remember. And a lot of them are real people. And so you, you can reference them, you can talk to them, you can visit them, you can meet them, you can get a feeling for who they are, just like you did in the story, you know, just like you heard in the story. I, I think that's sort of a magical thing. Um, it starts to make things real. Um, yeah. Yeah. When I think about my 20s and like sort of like trying to, you know, work at different companies, rise up quite quickly. And then I was probably a little bit, not impatient, but just I wanted to be something quick. And then your new book is actually about thinking a lot longer. I recently turned 30. Congratulations. It's a milestone. It's a milestone. (laughs) And I don't know, my thinking shifted. I think for the first time in my career, I'm actually like planning at least 10 years out. And I think that I'm like, like this week, I feel like I'm maybe at like 1% of this next journey. So like, how do you help people actually see the world or even see their own lives with a much longer kind of uh, look as opposed to like what you need right now? It's really about context, right? Which is it's okay to have the short views, but to what end? Um, and having an infant mindset is really understanding that there's a context for all of the wins contained within our lives. Like I want to get promoted. For what end? So I can advance in the world. To what end? So I can make more money. Mm. To what end? So I can buy more stuff. To what end? You know? And ultimately, I hope at the end of that string of questions, there's actually some higher sense of purpose or cause, which is I do these things to advance something bigger than myself. You know, the reason for me to operate with scale, the reason I want to advance this company, I want to build a company, is because what we're doing is using our company to to advance something bigger than ourselves. And so that's why we want to grow. Mm. It's not growth for growth's sake. And I think very often without that infinite mindset, without that infinite context, it does become growth for growth's sake or money for money's sake, which at some point becomes unbelievably unfulfilling and at some point becomes an unbearable pressure with no particular meaning associated to it. So it's the infinite mindset is really a context for all the stuff that we do in our lives that is more finite. How does that actually play out inside of an organization? I know you speak a lot about the role that leaders play in actually making this change. So let's say that you've got a team of 10 and you actually want them to think bigger and thinking bigger actually might mean beyond even this company, this team, or like the world that they know? How do you actually help people start to think and see the world in that way? Well, the company should have a sense of purpose or cause. There should be a vision that is an idealized state of the world that is practically, for all practical purposes, unachievable, but we will devote our company and what we do to help advance that cause, sometimes in the product, but just sometimes in how we operate. There's plenty of companies that make widgets that have nothing to do with the cause, but the manner in which they treat their people the manner in which they conduct their business is the thing that they're using to, to advance their, their higher sense of purpose or cause. I've talked about this company uh, before, Barry Waymiller. It's a manufacturing company with headquarters in the Midwest. And, um, you know, they make big machines. That's what they make. But if you ask the CEO, uh, Bob Chapman, what does the company do? He said, we build people to do extraordinary things. Hmm. And you say, well, how do you measure that? 
He says, well, we measure our success by how we touch the lives of people. And then he, he means it. Yeah. And, and you can hear it in the language of the company. Like, they, they don't have a head count. They have a heart count. Mm. It's very hard to reduce a heart count at the end of the year, you know? People reduce head counts all the time. And so you can, you can, you can feel it in the way that they do business. And they're trying to, and Bob in particular is trying to get more companies to see business this way. Now, it has nothing to do with manufacturing. Yeah. It has to do with how they built their culture. And that is entirely done by leaders. Is that like an example of a culture first company to you? Or does something else come to mind when I say, like, what is a culture first company? And what are some of the behaviors you might see inside of one? Well, that's a great example of a culture first company. I think culture first companies understand that people come before profit. We're living in a world that our understanding of how business works largely comes from the 80s and 90s, where it's about maximizing shareholder value, where growth for growth's sake, and that actually is a relatively new concept. Mm -hmm. The idea of using mass layoffs on an annualized basis to balance the books. These are relatively new concepts. They haven't always existed that way. It's really the 80s and 90s that established those as standard. And at the end of the day, we can see the damage that has been caused, you know, from after the Great Depression until the mid-1980s, we had zero, zero stock market crashes. Since, since the dismantling of, uh, of Glass-Steagall, in the name of corporate profit, we've had three. You know, we had uh, 2008, we had the dot-com boom, and we had Black Monday before that. Mm. So you can, you can see that we're actually creating imbalance in our system. And so what I'm trying to do, what you're trying to do, what, you know, when we talk about putting people before profit, that's actually a better form of capitalism than we have now. You know, people accuse me of being, you know, anti-capitalist. No, I, I love Adam Smith capitalism. I don't like Milton Friedman capitalism. There's a big difference. Milton Friedman was an economist in the 1970s who theorized that the purpose of business is to maximize profit within the bounds of the law. What about ethics, right? Mm. Uh, of course companies exist for more than just profit. There's only one thing on the planet that grows for growth's sake, and that's cancer, right? Companies have to exist for something else, and that's why we want to work there. But Adam Smith, the capitalism he talked about, you know, Thomas Jefferson owned all three volumes of The Wealth of Nations. The capitalism that Adam Smith envisioned, that's the capitalism that made America what it is today. And it is about people first. And I'm not talking about 90-10. It's not about the absence of money. Mm. Clearly, you have to have money in order to stay alive. You know, it's about will and resources. But there's a bias. There's a bias towards will. Because there will be decisions, big and small, sometimes on a daily basis, where do we choose the people or do we choose the money? And it's not always possible to save both. Mm. So the companies that have the bias towards people, what you find is those companies have greater trust, greater cooperation. They're way more innovative. And in hard times, the people rally together. The companies that have a bias for money before people, trust is sometimes suffers, cooperation suffers, innovation suffers. And in hard times, everybody's like, sign out, I'm out of here. There's no loyalty, yeah. right? What I love about culture first is it's, it's another way of saying... Put people first, and you'll be amazed at what happens. Organizations that put people first outperform the organizations that put uh, money first over the course of time. Jack Welch, who was the CEO of GE in the heady days of the 80s and 90s and was seen as the poster child for how business should work, well, GE needed a $300 billion bailout in 2008, and now we're not even sure that it's going to survive. So that didn't work out so well. It wasn't built to last. Yeah. That's the problem. Culture first means culture amp. I'm Didier Elzinga, co-founder and CEO. Together with thousands of customers around the globe, we're co-creating a better world of work. That means enabling leaders to drive their most impressive performance outcomes with real-time insights, data, and predictions. Our podcast is called Culture First 
because when you get culture right, your business succeeds at a rate never thought possible. Join us at cultureamp.com to see what it's all about. What are some companies that you think have already made that leap to that infinite mindset? Well, some companies are there and some companies come in and out of it. Um, Walmart used to be an infinite-minded company, then it wasn't under Mike Duke, and now it is again under Doug McMillan. Microsoft used to be infinite-minded, then it wasn't under Steve Ballmer, and now it is again under Satya Nadella. But a lot of the companies that we really admire, you know, it's the container stores. Airbnb has publicly said they want to be an infinite-minded company and they're building mm. an infinite-minded company. Patagonia, which we love. Sweet Green's another one. You know, they seem to have a cause bigger than themselves. Mm. I think a lot of people, like the brands that they buy from are having a much bigger impact on their life. It actually says a lot about a person if you work there or if you use their products. And, you know, I think one of the core concepts that you've become so famous for is like people buy why, right? And I think for me, it's also, it ties back to a meaning inside the company. So like what advice do you have to someone who feels like there's a big disconnect between maybe their why and their meaning and maybe what they think the organization stands for? Well, it's a multi-layered question. I mean, sometimes the organization has a clear why, and I have a clear why, but they're incompatible. Mm. That one's an easy one. Go somewhere else, right? More often than not, we're not 100% sure what our why is. We haven't put it into words, and neither has the company. And companies talk a big game. You know, They all have a purpose statement on their websites, but then we watch the way they make decisions, and they don't seem to actually follow that purpose. Um, and so I think um, we don't, although it's better if a company could say it and actually do it, just spend a little time seeing how they operate. And if it feels right, if I feel like I belong, it's like making friends. It's like, we're not friends with everybody in the world. And there are some good people with great values that we're not friends with. Like, we don't have to like everybody. And how do you get to know somebody? Over time. Mm. Like, we see how they act. We see how they respond under stress. We see how they respond when we're under stress. Are they there? Are they helpful? You know, are we building rapport? Are we building trust? Do we have a common set of values? It's the exact same thing inside a company. When we have a job and we see how the leaders operate, when, when we're under stress, when they're under stress, we're all imperfect. Do they have a, a mindset of personal growth? Do they want to, do they see their people as human beings? Do they reflect the values that we hold dear? And what we develop is a, a relationship with the company. And so that, that is a very, very good way of telling. We, we, even though I may not be able to put the why into words, I can say, it doesn't feel right here. I don't feel like I belong here. And conversely, we may not be able to put it into words and say, I, I belong here. Mm. I really love the people here. I love coming to work. That emotional question, that emotional answer to me is, is one of the great signs. When I think back of like the biggest growth opportunities that I've had in my career, it's usually because I've had to actually stop and check myself first and acknowledge that I don't know something or that maybe this is not the path for me. So I think being a know-it-all is actually very hindering in your career. Um, and especially, um, I remember a story that you shared once about like being the first person to actually say, hang on, what does this mean? And then a lot of people were there sitting there smiling, nodding, and actually no one knew what was going on. So like being a know-it-all versus a learn-it-all, how would you actually try uh, like adopt that kind of, you know, idea at like a company-wide level? What we're talking about is humility. Mm. And my favorite definition of humility was given by Bob Gaylor, who was the fifth chief master sergeant of the Air Force. And he said, don't confuse humility for meekness. Humility is being open to the ideas of others. You know, I know some people with huge egos, but when you say I have an idea, they lean in, mm. right? So it has nothing to do with, it's not this, oh, shucks, that's not humility, that's meekness. That's as Bob Gaylor defines it, which I love. So I, to your point, I think one thing that we can all do is simply ask people what they think with, before we tell them. Before mm. we come into meetings and we say, so here's the problem, here's what I think, what do you guys think? Too late. 
You know, there's this wonderful story of Nelson Mandela. And Nelson Mandela is a very important example because universally he's seen as a great leader. You know, different people are seen differently depending on where you go, but Nelson Mandela, universally. And he was asked by a journalist once, how did you become a great leader? And he tells the story of when he was a boy. He was, his, he was actually the son of a tribal chief. And he tells the story of he would go to, to tribal meetings, uh, meetings of the elders with his father. And he remembers two things. One, they always sat in a circle. And two, his father was always the last to speak. Hmm. You know, and if you think about the hierarchy that we accidentally create on long tables and how senior people too often dominate conversation in meetings, even really good people, mm. we can't help ourselves. And sometimes it's done with the desire to help. But there's something incredible about developing the skill of learning to speak last, where the meeting starts and a question is posed or a problem is raised, and you allow people to talk. And you can ask questions, but you can't give away your opinion for or against. So there's mm. none of this. Then there's no nodding. It's stone face. And what you start to find is people open up and they tell you what they think. And you get the benefit of all that linking, which is amazing. And even if you stick with the original opinion, people feel heard. They feel included. Yeah. You know, which they are. So I think, uh, at, a, at a practical level for organizations of any size, to practice being the last to speak is just so fantastic. You might be able to help me with a situation here. Uh, Cause I feel like I actually do that quite a lot, but it's for a different reason. I like pattern matching. So I like sort of seeing what's happening, connecting things that probably maybe other people don't think connect, and then trying to summarize them eloquently about what I feel like is actually happening. Um, but I actually recently got feedback that I speak last too often and that they would actually like me to maybe put in some of those ideas earlier because it might have helped us get to a solution. So is there a balance between kind of waiting back and being the last to speak versus knowing that you've got a good idea and sitting on it? Of course, of course. I mean, the reason, the reason to, uh, to share your patterns is, an, is, a, is, is giving. If it's only because you like collecting patterns, then it's really about your enjoyment. Mm. And uh, if you're showing up with a giver's heart, you'll find that balance a little easier, I think. Um, but also, there's, nothing, there's no such thing as perfect. It also depends on the personalities in the room. It depends on the dynamics. It depends on the, the problem or challenge that you're facing. Um, sometimes you might be leading the meeting and sometimes you're not leading the meeting. Sometimes it's appropriate and sometimes it's, it's inappropriate. Yeah. Um, I think too much of anything is a bad thing. You know, um, sometimes we want to hear what you say. And sometimes we'd like you to listen. The company Chanel does a thing that I absolutely love. I can't remember if it's 30 days or 90 days, but um, they have a, a policy that senior new hires, new senior hires are not allowed to speak in meetings for 30 days. Wow. Like we know you're smart. We hired you. You don't need to prove it to us. Absorb. Just shut up and listen. Yeah. And I think that's, I, I have a suspicion that it might be 90 days, but it, it might be only 30 days, which, but either way, it's brilliant. We're speaking a little bit about learn-it-alls versus know-it-alls, but actually to be a learn-it-all, you also need to create a space that's safe to actually say, I don't know something. Do you have advice for teams or have you analyzed what actually creates a safer space for people to actually be the first person to say that? Well, leaders are the ones who create the environment. They set the space and the leader doesn't have to be the most senior person there. Mm -hmm. um, it's the person who takes responsibility for the environment, for the people, how people feel. We don't teach leadership very often and very well in, in, inside our companies. You know, if you get a job, we teach you how to do your job. You know, if you want an accountant, we're going to teach you how to do accounting, you know, so that you'll be good at it. And if you're really good at it, you'll advance and we'll eventually will promote you into a position where you're now responsible for the people who do the job you used to do, but we don't teach you how to do that. 
right? And so it's a skill. Leadership is a skill like any other. Um, and so if we want people to be good leaders, able to create a, uh, an environment in which trust can flow, we have to teach the skills, like listening. Active listening is a skill, a teachable, learnable, practice, practicable skill. How to give and receive feedback. Effective confrontation. There's going to be confrontation. How do we do it in a way that doesn't inflame a situation or create something emotional where we can be adult about it, you know? These are skills. So I think one of the ways we create those environments is we teach these human skills. I hate the term soft skills. Mm. And it's more than just a two-day offsite. now you're all leaders. It's a regular curriculum. We also build it into the incentive packages. We actually can't incentivize performance. That's impossible. You can only incentivize behavior. But we only try and reward people when they hit a number. And yet we don't consider how they act at work. Well, if we built into people's compensation packages your performance and your behavior, you'll find people will behave better. Yeah. You know, you get the behavior you reward. So I think these all factor in. Um, but ultimately, it's about recognizing that business is a human enterprise. It's a group of people who come together every day in common purpose, with common cause, and and all the same things that go into any kind of human dynamic, whether it's families or dating, it's it's all the same. Yeah. It's relationships. And so all the things that make good relationships, listening, effective confrontation, go into making uh, trusting environments and companies as well. Are you familiar with the Australian company Atlassian? Mm-mm. So they recently got uh, quite a bit of promotion around this brand new, um, you know, human resource or people and culture policy uh, that they're going to stop rewarding brilliant jerks. And they're actually building in some of those things. Not that rewarding are brilliant jerks. Jokes. Oh, oh jerks. jerks. Oh, yeah. Oh. yeah. So basically they're looking to actually measure behaviors and how people are acting in the same way or as like one third of how you measure performance. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, the, 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 the toxic genius is, a, is, is, is unfortunately someone that we, we keep rewarding and a lot of leaders don't have the courage to deal with it. Mm. Uh, you know, they, they, some, they very often know who they are and they, we say, why don't you get rid of them? You know, they're destroying the culture. They're creating toxicity in your company. And they would say, ah, but their performance is so good. You know, they rationalize it. And, but, but it brings the performance of everybody else down. Yeah. Now, I, for one, do not believe that people who have performance issues or personality issues should immediately be fired. I think they should be coached. If somebody's struggling with their performance, we coach them just like you coach your kids if they're struggling at school. You know, we get them a tutor. And if somebody has personality issues, maybe they're a toxic genius, we coach them. The time to remove them is they prove to be uncoachable. Mm. And if they think they don't need this or people just don't get me, yeah. then it's time to, as Gary Ridge, the CEO of WD40, which is very much a culture-first company, he says it's time to help them go work for the competition. You've spent a lot of your career focused on leadership and that being a huge lever inside companies. And you know, managers touch people a lot more than the actual you know, chief people officer or the human resource team. What would your, like, let's say that you join a company and your CPO, what does Simon Sinek's kind of HR strategy look like to actually foster the type of leadership that you've spoken so much about? Well, first of all, I don't like the term manager. Um, nobody wants to come to work to be managed. Mm. You can manage a project. You can manage a process. You can manage, you know, uh, um, the outcome of, a, of, of something else. You can, you know, but, but, uh, but people want to be led. We want to come to work to be led. Nobody wants to come to work to be managed. Um, so I think that's, that's a big part of it, which is we have to empower people to recognize that leadership doesn't come with, come with rank or position. Leadership comes when you act like a leader. Mm. You know, when you demonstrate the characteristics of leadership, then you are a leader. And it requires no rank or authority. What rank and authority is, provides you is the opportunity to lead a greater scale. Uh, so I think that's a big part of it, to let people know that anyone can be a leader and, and, and everyone 
can choose to be the leader they wish they had. Mm-hmm. So these questions, uh, feel free to answer them in an out breath. Okay. Uh, is purpose something you find or does it find you? Both. I mean, it depends. It's, yeah. Is it arrogant and ignorant to assume that we are here on this planet for a purpose? No. Why not? It was one breath. <laughs> Good. That, that was a test. Um, <laughs> Because we're human beings. Yeah. And one of the basic universal truths of being human is our deep desire to feel like we belong to something. Mm-hmm. Right? We're tribal animals. We want to feel safe. We want to feel like we can go out and provide for ourselves and for our families. And we want to feel like we belong. Those are three basic human truths. Outside of your own books, if you were to recommend one book for the national curriculum, which one would you recommend? Uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Mm. And how to talk to kids so kids will listen. It's more practical. Who's the author of that one? I don't know. But it's a bright yellow book. It's a parenting book, but it's so good for businesses as well. Interesting. If I really knew Simon Sinek, I would know. That who I am publicly and who I am privately are the same. Does does that surprise people? Sometimes. Yeah. Like I meet people backstage and they go, you're nice. I'm like, what did you expect? (laughs) Besides that, is there another common misconception? (laughs) You'd have to ask the people who have misconceptions of me. I don't know. Yeah. If you could have influence over any company in the world that's going to have the biggest impact on society, which one would it be? Uh, big tech. You know, it's, it's the Facebooks, it's the Googles, uh, it's the Amazons that have um, massive influence in our lives. And we are, uh, our lives are these days fully integrated in, into their companies, into their products. Do you have any sort of fears in terms of the role that big tech is playing in our lives? Or do you actually see it as a force for good? It's about balance. It's not an, it's not an either or. I mean, alcohol's fun, but not if you drink too much of it. You know, it's, of course, of course tech has good, but, but tech that, um, that like any monopoly, like any dictatorship that has too much power and too much influence, balance is the, is the key. And I think we're, we're either in or approaching a place where it's becoming unbalanced. And so later today, you're going to be speaking to an audience at Culture First. Uh, these are you know, mainly made up of people either interested in people and culture or directly responsible for the people and culture at their companies. What actually got you excited about having the chance to speak to over a thousand people who are playing this role for their company? Well, I imagine a world in which the vast majority of people wake up every single morning inspired, feel safe when they're at work and return home fulfilled at the end of the day. So the opportunity to come talk to an audience like this, this is these are the people who are going to directly impact uh, the cultures of these organizations. In other words, they're going to create that sense of safety and inspiration and fulfillment. And so, you know, we're, we're part of the same army here. So it's a thrill for me to come and, and talk to people who are all trying to do the same thing. A big thank you to Simon for joining me on the Culture First podcast. As I reflect back on this conversation, there's one idea that really stuck with me, which was the power of branding yourself something bigger than just your job. At a barbecue over the weekend, or maybe at the next conference that you attend, you're going to meet someone and you're going to hear something like this. Hi, my name is Damon and I work in marketing or I'm a designer, I'm an architect, I'm a doctor. I understand why we do it. Labels help us make assumptions about people and they provide us with context when meeting someone. But should it be our default way of learning about someone? What Simon shared with me today is that his title might change. One day it could be consultant, the next day author, or maybe keynote speaker. 
But when Simon calls himself an optimist, that's something that won't change because it's not tied to his work, it's tied to his why. I read a story recently about why Simon uses the color orange and why he's always got a little bit of it on his person. He said because when he sees orange, it's a reminder to be the bright and optimistic version of himself. We all need these reminders from time to time, even when we deeply know what our why is. This made me want to reflect on the title that I'd be happy to call myself today that I hope will never change. For me, that's storyteller. It's connected to my own why, which is my belief that we are all one conversation away from changing the rest of our life. So I want to thank Simon for reminding me of that. In every episode of the Culture First podcast, I try to leave you with a takeaway that will make your organization 10% better. It's a little way to say thank you to everyone who's listened all the way to the end. For this episode, it's going to be focused on a powerful prompt to use in your one-on-one conversations. During your next one-on-one, when you're maybe discussing your projects, you could be discussing your goals, or maybe even your desired future state. Ask yourself, and do this with your manager or your leader, ask yourself, to what end? Why do I want to work on that project? Why do I want that to be my goal? Maybe, let's say, for example, let's make this real. Maybe you want to become a team lead. To what end? Is it because you want to manage a team? Or do you want more respect from your peers? Do you want to lead a team because you really want to coach and you really want to support others? Or do you want to become a team lead because you want greater financial resources to provide for other people at home? The question to what end is a really powerful way to get underneath the decisions and the desires that we think we want. And it helps us understand why do we want to do that? In our day-to-day business, I really do understand that there's not always time for that. But I think your relationship with your work, your relationship with your manager, and your relationship with yourself will be 10% better if you can stop and ask yourself, to what end? I've been your host, Damon Klotz, and the Culture First podcast is brought to you by the team here at CultureAmp, the world's leading employee experience platform. Learn more about CultureAmp by heading to cultureamp.com. We believe in creating a better world of work. If that's important to you too, then please subscribe and leave us a review to make sure that you don't miss a single episode and that more people can be part of this culture first community that we're building together, where we're trying to share stories that inspire us all to create a better world of work.